Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, or excuse me, I should say, the Gospel according to Mark. That's the correct title of the book. Mark chapter 4 is where we find ourselves as we are feasting upon the Word of God Sunday by Sunday. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, and how well fed we are, how rich to have the Word of God in our hands and in our hearts. Well, in Mark chapter 4, we have one of the largest sections in the Gospel of Mark on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have in Mark chapter 4 is some of the new things that the Lord Jesus Christ was revealing as he came, not simply as a teacher of the Old Testament, but as the Word of God in the flesh, a prophet and more than a prophet, and that Christ came into the world to teach new things that God had not yet revealed. Now, as we look into Mark chapter 4, verse 1, it says there that Jesus, he, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. Now, the word gathered there is actually the same word from which we get the word synagogue. And as Jesus has been teaching in the synagogues of Capernaum and all of the villages around the area, he has now got his own outdoor synagogue. He's gathered his outdoor group here by the sea, and he gets into a boat so we can picture the setting there, and he's teaching as he sits in the boat on the sea, also known as a large lake, but we call it the Sea of Galilee. It was a freshwater lake. And there the crowd listens, and yet the crowd does not understand many of the things that are revealed in this chapter. He teaches in parables. In verses 3 through 9, and then in verses 13 through 20, we have the first of the parables that Mark records in Mark chapter 4, the most important, the longest one, and it's misnamed the parable of the sower in the ESV translation. The titles there for each paragraph are not inspired. Those are things that are added by the publishers of this edition of the scriptures. And so it should properly be titled the parable of the soils. Because this chapter, from this first parable to the end, it's not about the sower, but it's about the soil and the seed. That's key. The soil and the seed. That's going to be our big idea here this morning. And Jesus is teaching these new things about the soil and the seed because the disciples are confused. The disciples are surprised. Jesus is clearly the Messiah sent from God with the miracles that he is doing, with the teaching that he is giving, with the words that are coming from his mouth, and yet so few people are actually following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a large crowd, but the crowds are not becoming disciples, and there is a lack in their response, and so this causes the disciples to wonder what's happening. Why isn't this going the way that we thought it was going to go? And so these parables explain what is happening in the time of Jesus in his Galilean ministry and why the people are not responding. Now, think about this. After Jesus' resurrection, we are told that he gathered his disciples together in Galilee. This is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, as a gathering of more than 500 people. 
Now that sounds like a big gathering. I mean, that's five times what we have here this morning. But think about this. This was a heavily populated area. Jesus spent years preaching and teaching in their synagogues and out in the hillside and along the seashore. And after his resurrection, how many disciples does Jesus have that will gather to meet him? Only 500. That's a remarkably small number compared to what should have been the response to the coming of the Son of God to the people of Israel. And so the disciples were wondering, why? Why is there such a lack of response to the ministry of Jesus Christ? Also, think about this. After Jesus' resurrection, when the disciples were gathered in Jerusalem, waiting for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, how many disciples were there in that upper room? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, about 120. A much smaller number in Jerusalem, where there was a city of many, many thousands of people, You've got 120 disciples of Jesus gathered waiting for the Holy Spirit. This is an incredibly small response to the most powerful and amazing ministry that has ever been done on the face of the earth, right? So that helps us understand the context for Mark chapter 4 and what Jesus is explaining in these parables. And this is the key idea. Right? As we go through the whole text, as we look at it in detail, each one of the parables, keep this big picture in mind. Jesus is teaching this. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the seed. It will have amazing effects in time. The seed will have amazing effects in time. That's the key that Jesus is getting across here to his disciples in these parables. But at this point, in the time period that Mark is recording in Mark chapter 4, even the disciples were not ready for all of the message of Jesus. That Jesus came with such a profound and powerful message that even those who believed in him, who had God at work in their life, who had eyes to see and ears to hear, they were not ready for everything that Jesus wanted to teach them and that it wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus that the disciples really understood. It wasn't until the coming of the Holy Spirit, the great teacher who was going to be in us to guide us into all the truth that the message of Jesus could really take root and produce the abundant harvest that it has the power to do. All right, so that's the big idea here this morning. We're going to be looking into Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 41 to get the details of that message I just summarized for you. And as I said, the disciples were wondering, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Here Jesus teaches about who is going to be saved and how. And as I mentioned, Jesus had many things that he wanted to teach his disciples, but even at the end of his earthly ministry with them, they were not ready to hear them. You cannot bear them now. But in the context, if you keep reading in John 16, the Holy Spirit the helper is going to be the one that is going to guide them into all of the truth after his resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this is what John writes about then later in his letter in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, which says this, The anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So here we are, we've got the anointing from God, the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. I'm not your teacher, I am one who is sowing the word. 
But the Holy Spirit is the one who is in you to open up your eyes, to open up your ears, to teach your heart and soul the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, teaching you about everything. And it's true. And it's not a lie. And just as the Holy Spirit has taught you, abide in that truth. That's the command to you. Your responsibility is to take what the Holy Spirit teaches you and to live it. Live in it. Abide in that truth. All right. So, let's do a quick review in Mark chapter 4, verses 13 through 20. Last week, we took a deeper dive into this first parable, the parable not of the sower, but as we said, the parable of the soils, the parable of four soils to be specific. And in verse 15, Jesus begins to explain each one of the soils. Notice what he says. Look in your Bibles, Mark chapter 4, verse 15. These are the ones, the first soil, sown along the path. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown on them. So the first soil, what is it? It's the hard path, the beaten path. And the seed that is sown on the beaten path is effectively bird seed. Bird seed is seed that you throw on a hard surface and the birds just come and eat it up. And that's the way it is with the hard path. The seed that is sown there is effectively bird seed. They take it away immediately. Paul wrote about this very same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 in these words. In their case, that is those who are hardened in heart, the hard path, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The God of this world is a reference to Satan. The birds of the air here that take away the seed is also a reference to Satan. So you see the work of the adversary is to blind the minds of the unbelieving so that they do not see the glory of Christ. And then in verses 16 and 17, in review, the second soil, look at it in your Bibles, the rocky ground. They hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. Notice what it says. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Notice this. Much of the apostasy, the false teaching that happens in the church and individuals who fall away from the church, it's because of the desire not to be persecuted, not to have affliction. People are always talking about, why is it that you have so many people who are former Christians? Why is it that so many people who grow up in the church leave the church? Why is it that so many people who profess faith in Christ and appear to be Christians for a while then fall away? Is there something wrong with what we're doing? If we adjusted the message, if we changed our methods, if, if we did something different, would we be able to keep all of the people who grow up in the church? Would we be able to keep all of the people who respond to the gospel call at our revival meetings? And Jesus' answer is no. There's nothing wrong with the message. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's something wrong with the soil. The soil is the problem, not the messenger. As long as we are sowing the seed of God's word, we are being faithful. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And if we start to think, well, if I can make some adjustments, if I can make it so that persecution won't arise on account of the word, let's take out from our preaching the things that are most offensive to our culture, and then people won't persecute Christians, and then people won't fall away, and we can keep all those people who grew up in church, and we can keep all those people who came to Christ at our rally. You change the message, and you are not being a sower of the word and you will have a church full of false converts. We must have the persecution. 
we must have the affliction in order to demonstrate who really loves the Lord Jesus Christ and who does not. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's something wrong with the soil. And that seems to be lost on everyone who analyzes and wants to tell the church how to do ministry in order to keep all these people who are falling away. There's something wrong with them, not something wrong with the preaching of the word, right? That's what Jesus teaches. Others are the ones sown among thorns. The third soil in verse 18. The thorny ground. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Notice the three things that are mentioned here. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Once again, nothing wrong with the seed. The word of Jesus, the word of the gospel, the word of God is perfect. Don't make any changes. Preach it in its fullness. Let it be known. And as long as you're doing that, you are being a faithful servant sowing the word. But for those who have the thorny ground, they will not bear fruit. Not because of a fault in the seed, but because of a fault in the soil. That is key. Now, the evangelical church, by and large, there's good churches, I'm not saying all churches are bad, but the evangelical church, by and large, has become expert at creating false converts. And they have developed every technique that can be thought of by mankind in order to keep false converts as a part of their system. But that is not what the church is called to. We are called to sow the word and allow the word of God to do its work in those who believe. I am not here to change anyone's soil. That is the work of God. I am here to sow the word. And those who have ears to hear will hear and those who do not have ears to hear will not. And I can't do anything about that. You can't do anything about that. No pastor can do anything about that. Jesus Christ is the only one who can change hard ground into soft ground. He's the only one that can take rocky ground and make it into good soil. Don't try to do God's work for him. Just be faithful to do what God has told you to do. And sow the seed. Tell the story of Jesus. I love to tell the story. All right, that's the thorny ground. A few examples of the thorny ground. Herod is a great example in Mark chapter 6, verse 20. Herod feared John. Talking about John the Baptist. So Herod arrests John, but he fears John, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man. So Herod kept John safe. And Herod liked to go and listen to him. But he was greatly perplexed. He didn't understand everything that John was saying, but he wanted to hear more of what John had to say. But did Herod bear fruit? No, he did not. Why? Because Herod was thorny ground. Herod had the cares of the world. Herod followed the deceitfulness of riches. Herod had the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proved unfruitful. Was there anything wrong with what John the Baptist taught? No. Where was the problem? It was with Herod. Herod's heart was bad ground. Also, I want you to take an example from the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel. This is a great passage. This is one that should be highlighted in your Bibles. If you're taking notes, jot down the reference. Ezekiel 33, verses 31 and 32. Here God is explaining to Ezekiel how the people of Israel listen to him but don't listen to him. And of course, this is a common theme in the prophets, right? Isaiah had this same problem. They listened to him, but they didn't listen to him. So God tells Ezekiel in this metaphor, this parable, they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. This is exactly what's taking place in the ministry of Jesus. 
The same way that they treated the prophets is the same way they're treating Jesus. They'd love to come and listen. A huge crowd gathers around him, but they won't do what he says. Notice what it says then. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. What's the problem? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Instead of blaming the Word of God, instead of blaming faithful preachers, oh, you offended them. They went away. Look, you're a bad preacher. No, they're a bad heart. I just told them the truth of God. And they hardened their heart and rejected it. There's nothing wrong with the Word of God. We don't have to hide the parts of the Word of God that offend people. They will be offended. They will go away. They will not do what the Word of God says. They will have an interest like Herod. They will have an interest like the people in Ezekiel's day. They will have an interest like the crowds in Mark's time, in Jesus' ministry. But they won't do what the Word of God says. Why? Because the lustful talk in their mouths. Lustful here has that idea of their own desires. It is the evil desires that control the heart of mankind that cause them to reject the Word of God. It's about the heart's desire. And until the heart is freed from evil desire, it is not going to embrace the call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the power of God that frees people from the evil desires of their own heart. And so, notice that their heart is set on their gain. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of other things. Their heart is set on their gain. That's the problem. Let's identify the problem correctly. Right? You can look at the, the symptoms, but you've got to get to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The problem of the heart. Look at what the, the next verse says there in Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, look, behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Could God be any more clear on this subject? Even a faithful minister who preaches the word of God, when the wrong heart hears it, it is only religious entertainment to that heart. Notice that Ezekiel is not a people-pleasing preacher. He's not coming along with a made-up message that is tickling the ears of the people. You can't accuse Ezekiel of just being a religious entertainer. But that doesn't mean that the people aren't going to treat him as if he is a religious entertainer. You could come here and be entertained by my flailing about on the stage. It's your heart. It's your heart. That's the important thing. Look at your heart. If you're here for religious entertainment, repent. This is your moment. This is your call. The Word of God is speaking. If you listen but don't do, now is the time to change. Paul wrote it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The ultimate ruin and destruction is the ruin and destruction of eternal hell. And if your desire is to be rich, 
you will plunge yourself into ruin and destruction. The problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And Paul writes, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Why are so many people leaving the church? Love of money. The desire not to be persecuted. Because they're following their hearts set on their own gain. That's why people leave the church. It's because they're bad soil. There's nothing wrong with the church. The faithful church. The true church. There's something wrong with the soil. The good soil is the fourth one there in verse 20. Look again at verse 20. Those that are sown on the good soil, they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Why does the good soil persevere in the faith? Why doesn't it fall away? Why doesn't the cares for other things come into the good soil and choke out the word? Luke chapter 22, verse 32. That's why. That's why. Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Why is your faith not failed? Why is my faith not failed? Because Jesus prayed for me that my faith wouldn't fail. And so it hasn't. God makes bad soil into good soil. That's his job. All right, so let's move on then this morning to the other kingdom parables here in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be looking first at Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25, which is about the lamp under the basket. Read in your Bibles, follow along as I read it out loud for us. Jesus taught this. He said to them, again, I think he's speaking to the disciples here. This is in the same setting as where he's explaining the purpose of the parables and explaining the first parable. He doesn't get back to the crowd until a little bit later with the parable of the seed growing. But here he's still explaining to his disciples the purpose of the parables. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, speaking to the disciples, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Very interesting words here in verses 21 to 25. Now, the first parable that Jesus gave us was our freebie. He explained the first parable. He doesn't explain this one. Now you're going to have to work for it. Now you're going to have to think about it. And that's the purpose of the parables. He wants you to think. Now, these particular proverbs or parables, whatever you want to call them, are used elsewhere in the Gospels in different contexts with a different meaning, interestingly enough. This causes some Christians, I believe, to misunderstand Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25, and they just take what Jesus meant in the other place where he uses the same comparison, the same metaphor, and import it into here. I think that's a mistake. Here, the metaphor is the same, but it's employed for a different purpose. Let me show you an example. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. The previous gospel, the first in our Bibles, Matthew, one of the three synoptics, 
Matthew chapter 10 and verse 26, has this same metaphor, this same figure of speech, but it's employed in a different context. Interesting. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. He says, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So here Jesus is teaching us who to fear and what to fear. And he's telling the disciples what he's telling them in secret. They're supposed to go out and proclaim it out on the housetops. That actually does tie in quite well with the meaning here in Mark chapter 4. Come back to Mark chapter 4. He also uses these words in Luke and there it's a little different context again where he seems to be talking more about like our secret sins that we think are hidden, they're going to be made known. But here in Mark and also there in Matthew, it's not so much a focus on the secret sins that are going to be revealed, but it's something else that is going to be revealed. And as Matthew said, what I've told you in secret, you proclaim, and that is the key to understanding its use here in Mark chapter 4 as well. Because Jesus has been explaining to his disciples that he's hiding these truths from the crowd because they're not yet able to hear it. They haven't responded to the revelation that he has given them, so they're not ready for the further revelation. Now the disciples have responded to the revelation that Jesus Christ has given, although imperfectly, and so they are more ready to hear this new teaching. And Jesus is telling them, after I'm raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes, then the people are going to be more ready to hear this and you're going to proclaim it and make it openly known. This is not a secret that is meant to be kept forever. This is a secret just until the right time because after the resurrection of Jesus, there are going to be many thousands who become Christians among the people of Israel. So it's secret, it's hidden. What is secret? What is hidden? The meaning of these parables. This new teaching about the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ is giving, it's hidden for a time, but it's meant to be revealed later, and the disciples were going to be those who were going to be revealing it. It's kind of like a Christmas present. You hide a Christmas present, but you don't want to hide it forever. That would be pointless. The point of hiding a Christmas present is so that it can be opened at the right time. And that's the way it is with the parables of Jesus. He didn't mean this to be secret, esoteric teaching that would never be revealed except to a a select few. He wants it to be known to everyone, but only when people are ready to hear it are they able to receive it. That's the point of this lamp under a basket or on the stand. Now, in verses 24 and 25, he commands the disciples to pay attention to what you hear. And that's our command this morning. That's the command of the Holy Spirit to each one of us. Pay attention to what you hear. Good communication not only depends upon the person who is speaking, but upon the person who is listening. Good listening skills are essential to good communication. And where does the breakdown in communication happen when it is our soul's relationship with God? Well, it is not in God speaking. God speaks very well. He speaks very clearly. He speaks very powerfully. There's nothing lacking in the communication on God's side. What is lacking is our side. We're not paying attention. We're not listening. And so the command of God constantly comes to you. Pay attention to what you're hearing. Don't despise the word of God. Don't allow your heart to get to that point where it's like, oh yeah, I've heard this, I know that. Can we hear something new? 
Once your heart is despising the word of God and no longer listening, then you're open to every deception that Satan is going to bring along your way. Something new, right? Something interesting. Oh, haven't heard this before. If you have a, a delight in controversies, rather than a delight in the plain truth of Scripture, there's something wrong with the way you're listening. Be careful how you listen. Notice what Jesus says right after that. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The amount of respect that you give to the Word of God is the amount of the Word of God that God is going to unfold to you. Your response to what the Holy Spirit has revealed to you and taught you is going to determine how God continues to deal with you and what He shares with you. The Holy Spirit deals with you personally. He knows exactly how you respond to everything that He's trying to teach you. And He says, the way that you treat me is the way that I'm going to treat you. You get what you give. That's another way of saying what Jesus said. With the measure that you measure, it will be measured to you. Another way of saying that would say, you get what you give. And if you give God no attention, you get no attention. If you give God no respect, you get no respect. If you don't tremble before the word of God, then God will hide the word of God from you until you are ready. He doesn't want it to be hidden. He wants you to have everything. But you have to respect the word. Notice what he says. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Have you got knowledge of God's word? If you don't make good use of that, if you harden your heart, if you despise it, if you reject it, if you sin against the light that God has given to you, even what you have is going to be taken away. Don't think that, oh, I've got knowledge of the Bible. I've studied the Bible. I've taught the Bible. I've got all my sermons online. I'm good. Beware. He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. My past faithfulness is no guarantee to future blessing. If I don't listen to the Word of God today, I'm going to lose what I have. I can be led astray. I can be deceived. I can finish the race poorly if I stop listening to the Word of God. God is real, God is alive, and God acts with justice. He acts with righteousness. He will treat us fairly, and it is fair for Him to take away from the one who has if He is not listening and paying attention to the Word of God. Now, this doesn't sound fair to the socialist. The lazy socialist thinks, well, I'm a special snowflake, and I deserve everything that God has to give to me, whether I work for it or not. And just as in material things, so it is with spiritual things. No work, no reward. No effort, no blessing. You say, what about grace, Timothy? Grace. No, grace is unmerited favor. You don't have to work for God's favor and grace. If you think that God is going to give grace to those who despise the word and pay no attention to it, you are mistaken about the nature of grace. What I have just told you has no contradiction to the doctrine of grace. And you've heard me in this pulpit preach from the word of God, grace, grace, grace. These truths are not incompatible. Think about it and you'll gain understanding. Say, why don't you explain it to me, Timothy? Because that's no work for you. No work, no reward. 
So I'm not going to explain it to you. If you don't understand how grace and effort work together, then you need to think about it. You need to study the Word of God. Because Jesus, His words are true. And He warns us here. The one who has not, even what He has, will be taken away. How unfair. Oh, is it God who is unfair? Or is it you who are unjust? What do you think is the problem here? No spiritual effort, no spiritual reward. That's what Jesus Christ is clearly teaching. Now, verses 26 through 29. Let's go on. Here's a great verse for what we were just talking about. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. You think. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You don't need me to explain everything to you. You need to think. And you've got the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will teach you. He will give you understanding in everything. Will he not? All right. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. And you notice on the slide, I've changed from the Sea of Galilee to the seed that is growing in the ground. Because now instead of focusing on the soil, we're going to focus on the power that is in the seed. And when you bring the seed of God's word into the soil that is good soil, amazing things happen. When you bring the seed of God's word into good soil, amazing things will happen. And you see that pictured here. All right, let's read verses 26 through 29. Now Jesus is back on the seashore, back with the crowds. Mark has made the transition there without really being very overt about it. But that's how I read it. And he's saying to the crowd, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Right? So very similar to the first parable, scattering the seed on the ground. But now, instead of focusing on the soils, he's going to focus on how the seed grows in the good soil. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. While the farmer is sleeping, the seed is growing. Is the farmer praying that seed into growth? No. Is the farmer willing that seed to grow? He's in there and he's like, grow, grow. And that's what causes the seed to grow? No. The seed does its work when it is in the soil And that's Jesus' point. The farmer doesn't know how it grows. It's miraculous. It's the work of God. In the same way, it is with the seed of God's word in the soil of a heart that is prepared to receive it. Look at verse 28. The earth produces by itself. I like that phrase, by itself. You can't make the earth produce. You can't make the seed sprout. This is God's work. We sow the seed, and then boom, it happens. We don't know how. How did that seed grow in that soil? It's amazing. That person changed, and the Word of God caused them to be born again. There's life where there was none. There's light where there was darkness. We don't know. That's amazing. The earth produces by itself. The the phrase there, by itself, corresponds in the Greek to the word that comes over into English as automatic. It's automatic. The earth produces automatically. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. There is a mysterious power of life in the seed. And that's why God has created the seed to be this illustration of the power of the word of God. And the word of God does its work in you who believe. I have not caused you to grow. The Word of God has caused you to grow. All I've done is spoken the Word. 
and it does its work. When I go and talk with other preachers and, and I say, man, we've got such great unity in our church. We've got such great love for one another in our church. We've got such service towards one another in our church. We've got a, a whole church full of ministers who come with that mindset that I'm here to be a blessing to other people. And they say, well, Timothy, you must be doing a great job. And I say, it has nothing to do with me. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is at work in their hearts. And all I have to do is teach the Word and watch it grow. The earth produces by itself. The farmer doesn't know how. Now, in verse 29, there's two ways of reading that. When it's ripe, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Is this talking about the harvest at the end of the age of the whole church? Or is this talking about the growth in the life of the individual, that once we've borne all the fruit that we're going to bear, then God takes us home to be with the Lord? Well, the MacArthur Study Bible likes the second view, but I prefer the first view. I think either one is great, and so you're going to have to think. What does it mean? Is this talking about me as an individual being ripe and then the harvest comes? Or is this talking about the whole church coming to be ripe and then the harvest has come? Think about what the Lord said. He will give you understanding in all things. He wants to reveal it, but it might take some searching. It might take some meditation. It might take some work and some effort on your part. How much work and effort are you putting into this? Well, that's how much you're getting out of it, right? I put a lot of work and effort into it, but that's not going to do anything for you. How much work are you putting into it? That's going to be the key in your life. And then verses 30 to 32 the final parable that we'll be looking at this morning, the parable of the mustard seed, which also, again, focuses on the seed. So the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the seed growing, the soil and the seed. That's what it's all about. It's all about the soil and the seed. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Now, let's read this parable. He said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Now, that, you could skip over that real fast and just get to the parable, but Mark put it in there, and Jesus said it for a reason. Now, why does Jesus invite us into the question of what parable should we use to describe the kingdom? We could say, well, Jesus, you know. I mean, you're going to tell us, right, in the next verse what we should use, but he doesn't just tell us. He asks that question. He wants you to think, what is the kingdom of God like? And so maybe you should take that as an assignment this week. Maybe I should take that as an assignment this week. Go home and think, what can I come up with as an example, an illustration, a parable for the kingdom of God? Now, if you know what the kingdom of God is and you've got the truth, you should be able to look around and, and come up with some parables. I was listening to John MacArthur teach on this passage and he was saying, I can always tell who's going to be a, a gifted preacher, and I knew he wasn't talking about me, because they, they talk naturally in parables. It just comes natural to them to just compare one thing with another and say, oh, it's like this. And if somebody can do that, if they can naturally say, oh, this is like this, then MacArthur says they're going to be a great preacher. And so here Jesus is asking us to do that. Think, what are the truths of Scripture like? Come up with your own parables. Come up with your own comparisons. That's somebody who's thinking about the Word of God. This whole passage is designed to get us to think about God's Word. Now, then he goes on and tells us, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. All right, so what does this parable mean? Many people have thought long and hard about this parable. 
let's take a look at some of the details. Now, he mentions the mustard seed, the grain of mustard seed, and he calls it a grain of mustard seed because this particular seed was known in Israel for its small size because it is about the size of a grain of sand. Now, there are seeds in the world that are smaller, but they weren't in common use in Israel at that time. So don't get hung up on, oh, Jesus said this is the smallest seed, but the black orchid is actually smaller. It's the smallest seed that they were using, okay? Don't be that way. You know, you don't want to be around people that are that way. The plant could grow to be about 10 or 12 feet tall, which is really large for a mustard seed. Most mustard seed plants only get to about three feet tall. If you're growing mustard seeds in your backyard, they won't get big enough for birds to build their nests in. But they had a kind of mustard seed, the black mustard seed, that could get up to 10 to 12 feet tall. And if you've got a bush, you know, small tree, bush, that is that size, then the birds do come along and, and they rest in its branches. And that phrase that Jesus uses, the birds of the air can make nests in its shade, is actually kingdom terminology. If you went back to Daniel chapter 4, you'd find in Herod's dream, not Herod, Nebuchadnezzar, still on Herod, you find in the king's dream there that uh, his kingdom is like this tree and that the birds of the air come and make their nests in it. And this is a metaphor describing a kingdom being a blessing to the nations. The birds are other nations, the kingdom is the tree, and so the shade and the protection that the birds get from that kingdom is like the help they get from trees, right? So here Jesus is describing the kingdom of God as having a very small beginning, but it's going to grow much larger than you would expect from its small beginning. This is a common theme in Scripture, that you don't despise the work of God when it starts small. I like this in Zechariah. They came back from exile and they laid the foundation for the new temple that was going to be built, Zerubbabel's temple. And the glory of Solomon's temple was still in the mind and memory of the people. It had only been 70 years since the destruction of that temple. And some of the oldest people who were there for the celebration of the foundation of the new temple were weeping because they remembered the glory of the old temple and they saw what was in front of them and they saw the difference. Weeping for joy, but also weeping for sadness at what was lost. And so God's prophet came to the people and said, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. That simple beginning for the temple back in Zechariah's time became a most splendid and glorious temple in the time of Jesus. So the disciples walked by and, and marveled at the stones and the gold and, and everything that was there at the Jerusalem temple. Well, in a similar way, the church started with almost nothing. 120 people meeting in an upper room in Jerusalem, 500 people meeting on a mountain in Galilee, nothing. But look at it now. What a blessing it's been to the nations. What a blessing it continues to be to the nations. The kingdom of God starts small, but it grows very much more than we would anticipate. There's power in the seed, the power of life. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. 